This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Paul Kreitman, Assistant Professor of 20th Century Japanese History in the Departments of History and East Asian Languages and Cultures at Columbia University. Dr. Kreitman is the author of Attacked by Excrement, the Political Ecology of Shit in Wartime and Post-War Tokyo, published in Volume 23, Issue 2 of Environmental History in April 2018. Dr. Kreitman, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. You recently published this award-winning article, Attacked by Excrement, about literally shit in Tokyo. <laughs> and I, I must ask, first of all, why shit? You know, what drew you to this topic? And what can we learn about Tokyo by looking at its waste? Thank you. That, that's a great question. Uh, before I start, I do want to thank you for producing this amazing resource. It's incredible. And it's just this uh, fantastic uh, overview of the field for you know in, in 2018 and it's it's an amazing project so really you should take Thank a bow. You so much. Uh, but as for what drew me to to shit in Tokyo, well a lot of people get interested in shit for all sorts of reasons. It, it is so central to everyday life, to the universal human experience, and there's also a you know a certain kind of yuckiness that is no undeniably compelling, of course. But for me, the entryway was, was fertilizer. And I've been interested in fertilizer ever since I first applied to grad school, in fact. And it doesn't sound like a particularly sexy topic necessarily, but it is such a fundamental component of life on Earth. Even if most people will never kind of come across it or handle it in their daily lives, the fact is that for better or worse, we live in a world where most people survive on food grown using fertilizer. Today, that's mainly chemical fertilizer produced using energy-intensive industrial processes, Harbor Bosch, Caro, and so on. But you can go a long way back into the past, particularly in Japan, and see farmers relying on different kinds of fertilizer to grow their food. So in Japan, 100 years ago, for example, it would have been soybean cake imported from Dongbei, from uh, Manchuria, northeast China. And before that, it would be herring sourced from the Sea of Okotsk or the Sea of Japan. And even those farmers who couldn't afford to buy these you know, commercial fertilizers relied heavily on the, on the Satoyama, so the hillsides around farming villages where they would gather hay or green manure to turn into fertilizer to put in their fields. And then, of course, there was night soil, human excrement, which is what I write about in the article that you so kindly mentioned. And all these different practices of fertilizer, they've had kind of different ecological implications. It could be for chemical fertilizer today, it's nitrogen runoff causing algal blooms in lakes, rivers, to running down fishery stocks for the herring or the fish meal, or to deforesting swaths of northeast China. And even on the local level, you see this kind of the Satoyama cultivation is really transforming the hillsides around Japanese villages for hundreds, maybe thousands of years even, kind of shaping that into an ecotone suitable for agriculture. And finally, there is the, the night soil trade, which was uh, really played a huge role in, in uh, reshaping the urban environment of big cities, like Edo in particular. Well, you were talking about night soil as a source of fertilizer in Japan. And for listeners in North America in particular, they say, well, this seems very strange. In other countries, fertilizer was from livestock, right? And so is it just that in Japan's case, there isn't domesticated animals, and this is why there is no ready source of animal manure, and so that you have to use night soil instead? Yeah, I think that is is a large part of the answer. Not just Japan, but China and other societies as well. I mean, there, it wasn't there were no animals. You do see some livestock, some pigs and chickens and stuff, horses as well. But the kind of ratio of, of humans to domesticated animals was, was much higher in Japan than in Europe or, or the US for sure. And the density of population as well also creates a different kind of um, supply-demand ratio. So yeah, that, that's a big part of it. 
And I think it was, as David Howell says, you know, shit was a very hot commodity. <laughs> <laughs> but as you're talking about, there is this night soil economy that grows up in Edo. And, and Edo's known to have this very well-functioning system of night soil collection. So can you talk about how this system worked? You know, how did the farmers get the stuff to put on their field? Right. So as, as you say, this is a, a very well-known trope, particularly in Japan. You'll see many books sort of celebrating this kind of night soil economy as being an example of sustainable resource use and kind of Japan being traditionally a culture in, in harmony with the environment. And you see where this goes down a certain maybe kind of culturally chauvinistic road. So I think it's one of the points that David Howell makes so, so well in his article that at the time, this wasn't designed to be a kind of sanitation project. This was simply that night soil or human shit you know, was a commodity at the point of production in the latrine. So, so really, farmers would come into the city. They would usually barter. They would trade um, garden vegetables like daikon, cucumber, that that kind of thing, with householders, and then take away the excrement. So, you have this system that almost, without anyone planning it, functions to keep Edo clean and remove the excrement from the city without any need for sewers. I mean, to the point where even after the major restoration, Tokyo doesn't have to worry so much about installing a sewer system because you still have this functioning night soil economy. Yep. But how does this change with the major restoration? What impact does the restoration have on this system? Again, a great question. And and you're right. Uh, there are these continuities that persist really well into the 20th century. I'll come to those. But there are some different, some, some changes that arise from the 19th century and from the major restoration in particular. And one big change the restoration ushered in was the complete reorganization of policing. So we know from the work of historians like Danny Botsman shows that Tokugawa policing and Edo operated according to a completely different logic, based according to the logic of the container society and the status system where different domains and kind of townspeople associations or villages really were quite self-governing and self-policing. And there's this role of the outcast groups, the Hinin, who were kind of spies and detectives. But it's really a very complicated, decentralized system of policing, if policing is even the right term for it. And this is all swept away in the 1870s. The major government created a police force substantially modeled on foreign institutions, on Paris, but also colonial police forces, Hong Kong and Singapore. And so you have, for the first time, you know, one institution that the Keishicho, the, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police, which was mandated to you know, police the whole municipal area of Tokyo in a much more integrated, comprehensive way. And this really enabled what Ruth Ragasti called a form of hygienic modernity, especially in response to these mass epidemics that were sweeping in Japan and indeed the world in the second half of the 19th century. So cholera, bubonic plague, and so on. And you see this very aggressive state response to anything or anyone that was seen to threaten public health. And this would include a raft of regulations that were designed to render night soil sanitary. So it had to be collected either early in the morning or late at night so that the pails weren't left out in the midday heat, which you can imagine in the summer that would uh, create all kinds of unpleasant odors. And there were also rules about transporting it with lids on the pails, again, to control the stench. And the police exercised really quite wide-ranging powers to quarantine anyone suspected of being contagious, and to barge into homes and sterilize latrines that might be disease vectors. So, so you really have this very aggressive, coordinated state response to the, these kind of mass epidemics. And I, I don't want to say that none of this would have been possible under the old system, the decentralized kind of Tokugawa system, but I think it would have been a very different response. It would have looked different in quite important ways. And so then we get into the 1880s, and in Japan, there's uh, infrastructural improvement movements, putting in 
freshwater systems from the 90s. There's the beginning of the sewer system. And so with this infrastructural development, does this night soil system go away? Or how does the infrastructural development impact the industry? Right. It is true that you start to see some sewer construction in central Tokyo beginning in the 1890s or so, particularly in districts like Kojimachi, Kasumigaseki, which have lots of government buildings, headquarters, and places like the Ginza, you know, commercial thoroughfares, which were very much designed to be showpieces of modernity, as I'm sure listeners will know by now from the other podcasts. But in the rest of the city, in the, you know, in the vast majority of the city, you don't start to see comprehensive sewer installation until much later, really the late 1950s. And, and I think part of the reason for why Tokyo and other cities in Japan too built sewers so late is to do with the timing. And that if you look at the big set-piece sewer plans in, in European cities, for example, like Chadwick's in London and, and Paris, they were commissioned in the middle of the 19th century, right at the height of the age of epidemics. There's the famous story about how the stench of the Thames got so bad one summer that the curtains in the Houses of Parliament had to be soaked in lime to kind of to ward off the, the smell. And these epidemics, they really struck an existential terror into the hearts of the ruling classes. You know, cholera, bubonic plague, they are no joke. Anyone can get them, not just the poor. And so that, that really helped to motivate the decision to spend large amounts of money on these ambitious infrastructure projects. But by the 1890s, when Japan started to think about, about sewers seriously, the age of epidemics was starting to wind down already. And the last serious epidemic to threaten mainland Japan was in 1895, when soldiers returning from the Sino-Japanese War brought cases of bubonic plague with them. And you could see in the archives that the Tokyo police were actually able to nip this in the bud fairly effectively using the techniques they'd already established by then. So going into the 20th century, that there is definitely concern that shit is a vector for all sorts of nasty endemic diseases like parasites, gastrointestinal flukes. And, and these are serious things. They, they, they can stunt growth permanently you know, over a lifetime. I don't want to belittle those. But they never struck the same kind of existential dread into the hearts of the governing classes that the cholera or, or plague did. And so because of this, there wasn't the same kind of urgent political will to build sewers, which after all are really expensive. And a classic case of this is uh, Goto Shinbei, who uh, kind of, if any one person exemplified hygienic modernity, it was Goto Shinbei. He trained as a doctor in Germany and then went on to have this illustrious career in Japan's colonies, installing public health infrastructure in Taipei, for example, Taihoku, capital of Taiwan. Then in the 1920s, he had a brief stint as the mayor of Tokyo and he proposed a similarly ambitious plan to build sewers and the Tokyo legislature just vetoed it. It was too expensive. The ratepayers wouldn't pay for it. So, so really, you see the limitations of, of um, hygienic modernity in a sense, uh, certainly in the sense we normally think about sewer construction in, in Tokyo and maybe elsewhere in metropolitan Japan as well. So instead of this, what you see in the interwar period in Tokyo and elsewhere too is a one of adaptation where the night soil uh, industry really manages to, to adapt to the, these kind of um, all these structural pressures uh, that you might think might drive them out of business. So, so what you see, particularly during and after the First World War, is suburban sprawl, like Western Tokyo starts to expand. You think of Setagaya, uh, which now is a kind of you know, upscale suburb that was all farmland before the First World War. And what this urban expansion does is it, it basically is gobbling up farmland. So the distance from the point of production, from the latrine, to consumption, the field is increasing. And you also see the proliferation of other forms of fertilizer, that the soybean cake from Manchuria, then nitrogen fertilizer produced by the new Zaibatsu, like Noguchi Jun's Nihon Chiso, which later became infamous for the Minamata disease scandal. 
and you have these new fertilizers, and quite understandably, many farmers prefer to buy these. You know, they're more concentrated and generally, you know, less yucky, less unpleasant to handle. Uh, so you have all these structural pressures, but in fact, the night soil collectors and the dealers respond to them with a reasonable amount of success. Uh, one thing is they start using new technology, like automobile trucks and motorized skiffs, which can transport night soil over further distances than raw muscle power can, whether it's um, human muscles or horses pulling carts. And they also lobby for support from the Tokyo government. So you have this interesting inversion in the value of night soil, the value chain that happens at the end of, of the First World War. Uh, so whereas before 1918, you see night soil collectors basically bartering or buying night soil, rather suddenly at the end of the First World War, urban shit goes from being this kind of commodity to a waste product, so that now not only will night soil collectors not buy it, but they won't even come at all. And the Tokyo government responds to this by basically permitting night soil collectors to charge Tokyoites uh, a fee to empty latrines. And you even get this license system where collectors get subsidies and a kind of accreditation from the government which allows them to keep emptying night soil, uh, emptying the latrines, but getting money instead of paying for it now. So you have this sort of adaptation to these structural pressures over the course of the 1920s and 30s, and the war just smashes this new system to bits for two quite simple reasons. Shortages of fuel and labor. So it's well known that during the, the Sino-Japanese War, gasoline in Japan became very scarce because of the American blockade, and all those limited supplies Japan did have were funneled towards the war effort, uh, you know, fueling battleships and so on. So those trucks that the collectors had come to rely on suddenly had nothing to run on. And even more devastating than this was the simple fact there was labor shortage too. So you have conscription, as pretty much any able-bodied male within a certain age bracket was packed off to the front line to fight. And on the home front, too, you have the Japanese economy operating at maximum capacity beyond that, really. And any man who managed to avoid conscription for whatever reason was suddenly highly sought after and wouldn't have found it hard to find better paid and really more pleasant work. So in a factory making munitions and so on. So really, the night saw collectors who, who've been doing this unpleasant work and making the, the trade possible suddenly found better things to do. And this is what caused the attack of excrement. So funyo uh, zeme was the Japanese term for it. And um, that zeme is a quite a nice pun because semedu can be to, to press, but also to attack. So you have the collectors just stop coming and people's cesspits begin to overflow, which is disgusting, but also a potential huge public health crisis. And the Tokyo government responded to this in a number of ways. The first was they started pressuring private commuter railway line companies like Seibu and, and Tobu to um, help transport this, this shit in the, the gold, golden wagons, the Ogon Resha. So basically, they're shipping this stuff at night out from the city to, to the fields in places like Saitama and Chiba. And the interesting twist here, if you think about the kind of the, the energy economy of, of, of Japan, is that trains, or these commuter trains at least, run on hydropower, which is perhaps the only form of energy that wasn't in really short supply during the war. So there's this interesting kind of substitution of, of hydropower, electricity, uh, for the fuel that's suddenly very scarce. So there's the, these, uh, these night soil trains, the golden wagons, and also you see this effort, especially uh, later on in the war, so 1944, when things get really bad, to uh, mobilize neighborhood associations, the Narigumi, uh, to collect and, and dispose of night soil themselves, basically pressuring volunteers to step in and fill that gap left by the night soil collectors. Now, there isn't actually much evidence to show that this worked particularly well. A lot of these neighborhood associations simply dump the stuff into ditches or storm drains or whatever water body they can find. So you have these reports of the moss along the banks of the Sumida River turning a kind of golden brown color, which is a particularly vivid image of this kind of the 
disperse sort of all this ash point into the kind of the kind of river and ecology of Tokyo. And even when you have successful attempts to get the shit out of the city, it's not always that easy to really find end users for it. And this is partly because of the labor shortage. So even in in the countryside, they're hard pressed for for people to actually to move the stuff around. But also those networks of distribution that night saw collectors have built up over decades weren't that easy to replicate overnight. It's not just about really getting the stuff from A to B, but knowing who to get it to, having those kind of relationships. So I think that was a huge part of, of why this wasn't really recreating that kind of um, that cycle of, of nutrients from field to city and back again. And it's really after the end of the war that you start to see a revival of a sort of, of the night soil trade. And this is, again, for a couple of reasons. The first is that factory gates are all shuttered, all those munition plants that they're, they're shut down abruptly. And also you have mass unemployment to all these people who are working in factories, have nothing to do. Then the veterans return from the front and suddenly you have a lot of desperate people who are willing to, to haul shit for a living. And this creates this fairly brief resurgence in the night soil economy from about 1945 through to the early 1950s, let's say. But this time it's totally unregulated. The city government wants nothing to do with it. They much prefer to employ their own collectors. And that's what eventually happens from the late 1940s. You have the return of a certain amount of prosperity. You have uh, chemical fertilizers come back online. And really the, the municipal uh, government fills that gap where the, the private collectors stop coming by, by employing their own staff. Speaking of sewers, I'm in Japan right now. I came back during the summer and I, and I was remembering, you know, and, and this isn't unique to Tokyo. I mean, certainly New York is, is the same thing. But, you know, every once in a while walking through Tokyo during the summer, you get this kind of, let's say, a aroma wafting through the breeze. I understand it has something to do with the way that the gutters are constructed in Japan, where uh, not necessarily enclosed pipes, they're just uh, covered with stone slabs. But this is something that the government has been trying to remedy. It was particularly leading up to the 1964 Olympics. Absolutely. And first of all, yeah, I think you're quite right to point out that many cities have have the distinctive smells. New York smells foul in summer. Uh, <laughs> speaking as a uh, an adoptive New Yorker, I can say that with some confidence. Um, but yeah, this question about that, that odd smell in Tokyo, uh, many cities that, that, yeah, I think some of your listeners will, will have noticed, especially in the summer. So some of that is indeed coming from, you know, decaying biomass like leaves and algae and stuff in gutters and drainage channels. But some of that is probably traceable partly to human excrement. Uh, and we can trace the reason for that right back to the 1964 Olympics in an odd way. One of the things I suggest in my article is that the 64 Olympics really was a key driver in promoting the, the construction of sewers uh, in Tokyo. There were other factors as well, of course. You have the rapid post-war growth and the spread of social housing and other large-scale apartment blocks, so the, the Danchi and so on. And it's a lot cheaper to connect one large building to a sewer main than many small ones. So there's certainly that. But it's also notable that the budget for sewer construction ramped up dramatically after Tokyo won the Olympic bid in, in 1959. And this coincided with a lot of talk in, in newspapers and so on about Tokyo being far too disgusting for foreign visitors uh, when they came to the Olympic. And Yoshikuni Igarashi's book, Voyages of Memory, has a wonderful chapter on this. And he has this jokey relays about Tokyo 
not being a, a Kokusai Toshi, an international city, but a Unkokusai Toshi, a city that stinks for shit. <laughs> and you see in particular a lot of discussion about how shameful it is that the Tokyo still relies on, on night soil collection, which is something that the American occupiers had, had often remarked upon rather, rather disdainfully uh, when they were occupying Japan between 1945 and, and 1952. And I call this an awareness of the colonizing nostril, not the colonizing gaze, but the nostril. And I, I do think it was one reason for the burst of sewer construction in the years before 1964. But here's the twist. For whatever reason, I'm not sure if it was to save on cost or time or perhaps both, Tokyo chose not to build a wastewater sewer system that, that was separate from the existing storm drains, which carry away rainwater runoff to prevent flooding, but instead to build a combined sewer system instead, so essentially where rainwater and sewage are carried in the same pipe. And usually combined sewers are able to uh, essentially use sedimentation uh, and kind of natural processes to separate those two. So the sewage is funneled off for treatment and the rainwater is released into, into surrounding water bodies uh, without any contamination. But it's also a specific design feature of combined systems that during periods of particularly heavy rainfall, they will release some of that sewage along with the rainwater to prevent the treatment system from being overloaded. So that may be what you're smelling when you saunter along the sort of body of the Sumida on a balmy August evening. Now that the Tokyo Olympics are coming again in 2020, do we see similar efforts by the metropolitan government to make Tokyo more tourist-friendly when it comes to some of these smells? Yes, there are some parallels for sure. Uh, again, this is a really interesting question. So one, one parallel, I suppose, is there is an effort to ban cigarette smoke, which you think of as another public health hazard. Um, and again, if you've been to Japan, you'll often notice that smoking inside restaurants is, is widely accepted unlike in many other countries that have banned this practice in the past decade or so, and also outside combinis. So there's an effort to basically uh, ban smoking restaurants and also to pressure the big combini chains like Lawson and Family Mart to uh, remove those ashtrays outside in the parking lot. You also have some of the combini chains have agreed to remove pornographic magazines from their shelves, which you could think of as a kind of moral hygiene, I suppose. But the most interesting effort for an environmental historian, at least, is an attempt to tackle this new public health crisis that's been uh, looming in the past year, which is extreme heat waves. So Tokyo last year had the highest ever temperatures on record and people died because of it. This is serious stuff. And it, it's a result of climate change, uh, but also climate change compounding existing heat island effects of, of Tokyo being this massive concrete jungle, which is, of course, also a legacy of the first Olympic Games, which saw the construction of massive expressways, as well as sewers and kind of concrete cladding. So the, one of the ways that the government is trying to tackle this is to install this special heat blocking surfacing on some of the roads that will apparently will kind of bounce the heat back and not absorb it like concrete does. We'll see if that works and also attempts to install kind of um, mist sprays in busy areas to kind of cool people down. So you do see similar attempts to tackle sanitary hazards or kind of public health hazards uh, in the run up to 2020. But I don't want to push it too far in the sense that if you were to look at the money spent on the on 2020 as a proportion of the national metropolitan budget, it would be a tiny fraction of what was spent in 1964, proportionally speaking. So in 1964, you had not just sewers, but expressways, the, the bullet train, the Shinkansen, you had clearances of what were then called slums, we might call that extra legal housing and, and kind of moving people into these danchi. And this was really dramatic stuff that fundamentally restructured Tokyo's urban fabric. And I just don't think you see anything approaching that in the preparations for 2020. And part of the reason for that might be that Japan occupies a very different place in the world than it did 60 years ago. So when Tokyo was awarded the Olympic bid back in 1959, the country was still under occupation informally. Okay, formally, um, SCAP withdrew in 1952, but there was still a sizable American military presence throughout the country. 
And the terms of the Treaty of San Francisco, which had ended the occupation, still permitted the US to intervene in Japanese politics whenever it felt that the status of its troops were threatened. Uh, Nick Kapoor is good on that in his uh, new book about Ample. So you have these really quite wide-ranging powers of the US to intervene in, in Japanese domestic affairs. And more broadly, Japan was still struggling to recover from that status of international pariah that it had earned during the war. And the Olympics was a chance to change all that. And compared to that in 2020, and I'm aware it's always risky to pontificate about you know, the na- national zeitgeist and so on, but you could say that these kind of relatively underwhelming or small-scale preparations compared to 64 are a testament to the fact that Japan and its policymakers feel much more secure about their country's place in the world. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.